welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Anglican Church of Franklin, Pennsylvania. Through every sermon, we hope that you are encouraged by the Word of God and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. To find out more about our church, visit our website at franklinredeemer.org. So around 197 A.D., the, well, one of the great North African theologians and apologists of the church, Tertullian, made a quite famous claim. He said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Tertullian was making the point that the attempt to squash this new Christian movement, and during his time it still was relatively new, actually was what gave nourishment for it to grow. A few decades earlier, sometime in the mid-2nd century, an unknown author uh, speaking to some type of, of pagan Roman uh, uh, authority wrote this. Do you not see that the Christians thrown to the wild beasts that they may recant the Lord do not allow themselves to be beaten? Do you not see that the more they are punished, the more the others increase in number? It's a wild thing. It's actually quite historically odd because usually persecution destroys a movement, especially a young, early movement, as it was during the time of Tertullian, especially during the time of Acts. And almost never does rampant persecution social opposition bolster it. And so you have to ask the question is why in this particular instance was it the opposite? I would say first is it's not the fact that it was outlawed, not because the authorities uh, despised it and attacked it. And that, that wasn't what drew the people to it. Like, this is not the late 80s in which you have a rebellious group of youngsters and the establishment society decides that certain songs and albums need to be outlawed because they're bad for society. Particularly, they were, happened to be hip-hop albums. And because of the public opposition to it, every single suburban kid in his teens had to have that album. It's not like that. They weren't drawn to the persecution. Nobody was trying to rebel, saying, like, this is a cool underground thing. That's, that's like our thing. That's a more modern type of thing. No. The reason why is because of how the Christians responded to that persecution. 
See, the early witness of the church was not just the message they proclaimed, not just how they lived together in community. But as one author had said, it's how those Christians die so well. So we had just looked in our our walk through the planting of the church in Acts. We had looked at the Spirit-filled preaching of the Gospel. Building the church. And we saw the communal life and worship, the rhythms of the church living together. Last week, the, the miracles, and we see how the initial church was growing and growing. And during that initial period, it did say in Acts that they had favor among all people. But today, we get into the first opposition. The beginning of the persecution of the church. And we see how the church, shaped by the gospel and filled with the Holy Spirit, continued to grow in spite of that increasing opposition. And so for today, I just want to look at our passage, just kind of running through it quickly, to understand what is happening so that we can see the reason for the persecution, how they responded to the persecution, and how it informs our response today to opposition we might face. So first, looking at the reason for the opposition. If you'll notice, and you were here last week, we're still in the same scene. This is after the uh, paralytic was healed and, and Peter and John were, were, had healed this man and then it drew a bunch of attention and then seeing the crowd coming, Peter stood up and began boldly proclaiming the gospel of Christ. That he was the resurrected Lord and Messiah. But now as this, this kind of chaotic crowd, this, this makeshift preaching that shows up within the temple is happening, we have the, the kind of social and religious leaders in the temple showing up to see what the ruckus is all about. And it says within the text that they were upset, but they were upset because they were proclaiming Jesus resurrection of the dead. It was Jesus and the resurrection of the dead that they were upset about, but why? I think one of the things we need to know, we need to know who these guys were to better understand why they were so upset with this message that Peter was proclaiming. It said, says in, in Acts, Luke says that there were priests, the captain of the temple, and Sadducees that had showed up. Priests were the overseers of the temple. They were the ones who were supposed to care and look after the worship of the church. But you have to remember, historically, this temple has just been rebuilt. It actually still has construction going on in it during this time. Every single person who walked in that temple is reminded that this was all destroyed and lost. Reminded that the powers that be that were before Rome had crushed 
the center of their religious identity, the center of their worship. And now it's being rebuilt. Because if you can maintain a level of partnership and peace with Rome, then we can protect our temple. So they were concerned about maintaining Jewish worship and devotion, but they were also fearful of any rebellion, any disorder, any uprising that might lead Rome to take away their center of religious life and worship. The captain of the temple guard, this was a powerful man. He was actually the right-hand man of the high priest, put in place for that very purpose, to maintain order within the temple. And then it says that we have the Sadducees. Actually, most of the priests in the temple guard were likely the Sadducees. The Sadducees weren't a people group, but was a a religious movement, a, a perspective within early Judaism. Josephus tells us that there were three main camps. There were the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Essenes. Those were the three main religious camps within Judaism. And the Sadducees, I think, were often misunderstood or mischaracterized by Christians today. I've always heard it say, said that the Pharisees were the conservatives, the Sadducees were the liberals, and then we extrapolate our experiences here today with our different camps, and then we just put them on the people in the first century. Really neat and tidy, and we can always demonize the ones that we aren't. Problem is, is actually the Sadducees in many ways were the conservatives. They were concerned with a very strict adherence to the biblically mandated temple ritual and practice. They were also strict literalists in their interpretation of Torah. For instance, a disagreement might shock you between the Sadducees and the Pharisees is that the Sadducees felt that when the Bible says eye for an eye, that means we gouge out a man's eye. The Pharisees said, no, it represents a, a different, deeper reality and actually were, were, had different other ways in which somebody could pay, make recompense for what they had done. And they rejected oral tradition in later developments. Some of the things that the Pharisees had held to that were part of oral tradition that had developed in the intertestamental period, some of the things that Jesus actually refers to and holds to, they rejected because it's not clearly marked out in Torah. But see, the Sadducees were also very wealthy and powerful. They worked with Rome to secure protection and the continuation of temple worship. They were concerned with maintaining the Jewish way of life, maintaining Jewish worship, and to do so, they partnered with Rome, sought political power to help them accomplish this protection of their way of life, and in the process became very powerful and wealthy as well. And we know that the Sadducees rejected resurrection. First, because they didn't see it in their hermeneutic. They didn't find it in their reading of Torah. But they also didn't just reject it as we don't believe that. They hated it. They despised it. Because resurrection is a very 
dangerous revolutionary doctrine. See, it was the Maccabeans back in their revolt. They actually gained Israel freedom for about 100 years, but during the Maccabean revolt, which the the Jews today celebrate during Hanukkah, during that revolt, the Maccabean revolutionaries held on to the belief that whatever the Syrians took from them, God would restore to them in the resurrection. So they didn't fear the powers. They feared that resurrection might spur on another revolution like that, a revolution that will have Rome destroy what they have been frantically protecting. But what's even more dangerous than the doctrine of resurrection is the concept of a resurrected Messiah. Because they knew what the scriptures taught that the Messiah was going to do. That the Messiah was going to overthrow all powers was going to establish the kingdom of God. And to have this type of message start to spread through the people, that's going to quickly turn Rome against the favor that these Sadducees had worked so hard to build up. And it was already starting. One of the, we know one of the main proclamations and statements that the Christians in, 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 in New Testament times, but then early on in the early church was, was Kyrios Jesus, which means Jesus is Lord. And it was a true doctrinal statement, but they were also making a very revolutionary statement because what was printed on coins, what was put in graffiti over Roman walls, what was stated all the time was Kyrios Caesar, Caesar is Lord. Jesus is risen. He is Lord. And so they started making these proclamations. They're also saying, that means Caesar ain't. And so it was dangerous. But I want you to notice what put them in custody. What the initial persecution was about. It was the bold proclamation of the gospel of Jesus and the resurrection it wasn't because they were standing up and attacking Rome they weren't attacking the Sadducees theology they weren't attacking anybody what they were first and foremost doing was proclaiming the resurrection of Christ and that's where the persecution had come from. And then we see how they responded. It says that they were held overnight and then put before likely the Sanhedrin. It doesn't say, but the listing that Luke gives us here gives the the insinuation that it was the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the highest authority or Jewish authority that Rome allowed. And we see that in this group that was to interrogate Peter and John, they were definitely heavy hitters. Luke says that the rulers and elders, most likely this language is talking about the aristocrats, 
the power players. Most likely, most of them were Sadducees. And then he says, the scribes. These were the top theologians of the day. These were the top ethicists of the day. These were the guys that scholars do podcasts about. But interestingly, we know most of the scribes were Pharisees. If you know anything about the first century, the the, uh, Pharisees and Sadducees hated each other. But there is nothing that brings unity together better than having a shared hatred for somebody else. And then we have Luke, who starts name-dropping. Most of the, some of the names we know, some of the names we don't know. But if you know anything about ancient writing, if they drop a name, then those who in the first century would have known who these dudes were. But you had the high priest and the high priest family. It's like having the Pope show up. And his top officials around him. And one thing to remember is that these were the most powerful, most educated religious authorities in Israel, and they had every power they needed to destroy Peter, John, and anyone associated with them. We know this because don't forget that it wasn't that long ago that the majority of these same guys had Jesus standing in front of them. And they had the power to have him crucified and killed. And they says that they start to grill Peter and John. Of course, in Luke's account of any of these, it's just a quick summary of what was actually going on and was said. And it says that Peter begins to speak. I'm not going to break down his talk, but I think there's a couple of good points to note from this. It's first that even in this context, Peter does begin and approach them with humility and respect. He says to them, rulers of the people and elders. That was an honorific title. It was a respectful title. But even in his humility and respect, we also see that Peter does not back down. He doubles down and is bold about the gospel. Peter knew that it was the proclamation of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead that got him in there. Their question did not necessitate him to go there. They just asked him by what power he had done what he had done trying to trap them just like these same guys, some of them maybe, had tried to trap Jesus. Showing him to be a magician or using something contrary to Scripture. But Peter isn't playing that game because he knows that that's not the real issue. He, said, he could have just said, well, by Jesus. But no, he says, by Jesus. And then he goes back into the resurrection. The very thing that put him there. And even amongst the scribes, he brings to bear scripture that all of them would have known very well. The stone that the builder rejected. Psalm 118. Even the Sadducees 
or priests that had their position because mommy and daddy had a lot of money and paid off Rome to get them their position. They'd never read their Bible. They would know Psalm 118 because the Jews would go through the Psalms almost monthly in their worship. And then we have verse 12. Where Peter says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. It's important to note that in the the Old Testament or in Jewish mind, but found throughout the Old Testament, that salvation, this term of salvation, can refer to different realities. It can refer to physical salvation, protection from something, Social salvation. Salvation from a place of ostracization, poverty, or anything else. And also spiritual salvation. Forgiveness of sins, the redemption. And what's interesting is this paralytic. We're not sure if he's standing there with him. I like to think he probably was. Actually represented all three that in the name of Jesus, he was saved. He could walk. He is no longer an ostracized beggar on the street. And he is now a redeemed child of God. But here's here's the very bold thing about what Peter just did. Is he's making an exclusive claim. Claim that our hope, our security, our righteousness, all that we need and what is necessary is in Jesus alone. And as he's saying that to these religious authorities from different camps, different emphases, When he says that it's salvation is in Jesus alone, he's also saying to them that salvation is not in securing temple ritual. Salvation is not in maintaining political influence with or favor from Rome. Salvation is not moral adherence to the laws the Pharisees had argued. Salvation is not from wealth and power acquired for you and your descendants. He's saying, all that you represent and are pursuing, there is no salvation found in that, but what you are attacking and condemning, in that and that alone is where our salvation comes. That's bold. We see in the Acts account that the religious rulers and authorities were shocked by that boldness, mentioned that boldness. But this is, should be, as you're, if you're following the whole narrative, if you're following the narrative from, from Luke and from the Gospels, should be shocking the first time you would read this. Because this is Peter. This is the same Peter who not long before this, I, I'm not sure of the timing, but like probably like a month or so before this, denied Christ because he was afraid of a little serving girl. 
And I mean, I, I don't want to be offensive to this little girl. Maybe, maybe she, she converts and then in glory, like I'll realize that she's actually very intimidating. But most likely this little servant girl had nothing compared to these men that Peter was standing before. They were way more intimidating. But see, the difference between Peter then and Peter now, there is two part. One is mentioned by Luke in verse 8. Because before he talks, Luke makes point to mention, then filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is after Peter had witnessed and encountered the resurrection that he was now standing there proclaiming. He had been with the resurrected Lord. And see, this is where the power of Peter's spirit-filled proclamation is found. I I love, because the power of the spirit-filled proclamation here is not that afterwards the, the the leader said, man, this guy's freaking brilliant. Maybe I should maul on some of his ideas because of how intelligent he comes across. No, I, I think it's humorous because they say, instead, no, this guy is uneducated. It says commoner. I love the Greek for commoner. Um, in the Greek, it's idiotes. Doesn't take long to figure out one of our English words that came from idiotes. It had a little bit of a different meaning, but I love it because essentially as you look into the Greek, it's like, these guys are uneducated idiots. So they were astonished. But I find so profound is that in seeing that these were uneducated idiots, they also saw and recognized that these men must have been with Jesus. How would they know that? Because Jesus had stood before these same men. A Jesus that they were grilling. A Jesus that they saw as some illegitimate peasant kid from that small hick town, Nazareth. And yet, in their response, they did not just see eloquent argument They did not just get torn down by the apologetic rigor. They saw something in these men that said, these men must have been with Jesus. And so a couple of keys I think we can get from this as we look in in, in our, our current time and situation. And one thing to note is when you look and the scriptures about persecution and, and how we respond and everything else. There is a difference that is noted, especially within the epistles, of how one handles and responds to realities within the church as opposed to those who are not claiming to be within the church. But it's important to remember, as we're reading through this, the persecution was because of their caring for a forgotten lame beggar and proclamation of the gospel alone. 
It was actions that were done in representing the reality of the resurrection, the reality of the gospel manifest, the kingdom manifest in a particular way as we talked about the other Sunday. And it was a bold, clear proclamation of the gospel, the resurrection, the exclusivity of Christ. Peter, many years later, reflects in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 15, instructing the church, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. I think far too often, at least in our context, Christians claim persecution and opposition in the name of Jesus, but in reality, they are hated and despised because they're being jerks. The Greek for meddler means somebody who is constantly bossing others around, trying to control people. And the thing is, is that there are aspects of the gospel that will be offensive. But we must make sure that, it, that, that opposition that we think is, is opposition that Peter is speaking about, that opposition must not be because of a particular view or how we hold to certain political ideologies or anything else. Sometimes you might be hated for those things. Sometimes it might be right to stand up for those things. But that is not the persecution being spoken of here. The persecution that is being spoken of by Peter is persecution for holding fast to the gospel and the gospel of love. Proclaiming that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. And sometimes it's offensive because it's through Christ alone. And second, the true power of our witness is not necessarily the eloquence of the words. I, I don't have a problem you know, studying apologetics and everything else. I can tell you one thing, though. I ain't never met anybody who has been intellectually argued into the faith. Because ultimately, the issue is not the mind, it's the heart. See, the true power of our witness is responding in a manner that would lead others, even though they don't know Jesus, to sense something that once they met Jesus, to be able to say, they must have been with Jesus. Reflecting the one who allowed those who were in his opposition to ridicule and slander him, but never backed down in fear, but never returned vitriol with vitriol. The man who was crucified upon the cross, 
by his enemies and used his last breath to say, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. See, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church because the true seed of the church was the one who was willingly martyred at the hands of his enemies. So that all of us who were enemies of God may receive grace and forgiveness to become his brothers and sisters. That all of us might become children of God. See, the early church did explode in the face of persecution. In large part because they not only proclaimed Christ in his gospel, they stood bold in the face of opposition, in the face of loss and threat to the gospel of Jesus. Yes, they did that, but they also reflected Christ in his gospel by the way they responded to that persecution. So I'm going to finish with a few more words of Peter. Again, many years later, as we'll see in Acts, having himself faced even greater persecution and opposition than this. Words from one who himself willingly accepted martyrdom. Crucified upside down, proclaiming the grace and forgiveness of the gospel, the resurrection of Christ from the dead, salvation in his name, proclaiming that up to the very moment of his death. Peter says this to the first century church and says this to Redeemer Anglican Church today. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. May that be our attitude that we never back down from the gospel. But we also proclaim the gospel, reflecting the grace of the gospel. That we might have the attitude of Christ himself. So that even if they have not yet met our Jesus, if they ever do meet our Jesus, they'll look back and say, when I encountered those people, they must have been with Jesus. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming sermons and consider joining us in person for Sunday worship. To learn more, check out our website at franklinredeemer.org. Bye.